This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. They say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And it fits nicely on a coffee mug, a t-shirt, or even a canvas tote. But let's think about that for a moment. If beauty is subjective to the person experiencing it, then what is beauty? This week, we're going to explore the science of beauty and how we all suffer from blind spots that prevent us from seeing the wonders that surround us. And in our SAS class, we'll learn how to use philosophy and neuroscience to help us appreciate beauty better. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to open your mind to the amazing potential of beauty, apart from what we see with our eyes. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. We're surrounded by beauty. Take our planet, for example. We are in awe of nature, the bubbling brooks, the towering snow-capped Rockies, the tropical rainforests, and don't forget flowers, butterflies, and if you look up, there are the stars in the sky. But what if we're not directly experiencing that moment? We kind of turn a blind eye, don't we? And that is what our first guest is here to talk about. What are the consequences of not caring about the parts of the universe that don't fit into our individual reality? Can we care about something when we don't own it? How can we identify our own blind spots? I'm joined by Zaya Tong, who was the host for Discovery Canada's Daily Planet and is the author of the new book, The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and the Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World. And she's here to tell us about the beauty that surrounds us that we're most likely taking for granted. We have heard of the physical blind spot, like when you're driving, but you explore several that we don't know about. What are these blind spots? Well, I think the marvelous thing about science and scientists is that they're reality testers and they're constantly playing and working in a world that's invisible to the average person, right? So these blind spots for me from a scientific realm is the fact that science can see what the naked eye often can't see. And we saw this most recently with the fact that, you know, we were able to image a black hole and we can even see things as tiny as atoms. So there's an entire world of wonder around us that uh, the average person simply can't see. Blind spots tend to take away our appreciation of beauty. But in some cases, it's also taking away from the beauty that is our Earth. Tell us about how human blind spots can be troublesome for our planet. There are a lot of things that we don't see. I mean, one thing that really struck me is the fact that in the 21st century, there are cameras everywhere. 
accept where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes, right? And yet we are the most powerful species on earth, but in some manner, we don't even know how we survive. But if you think of things like where our waste goes, I was reading a little while ago, I think it was in the New York Times. It's astonishing because in New Delhi, the Supreme Court there has actually suggested that the air traffic control starts navigating aircraft away from the dumps because the dumps are getting so high. So when we speak of the ugliness, um, a lot of us in richer countries don't get to see where a lot of that waste goes. But in poorer countries, of course you do. But there are other ways in which we don't see whether you might call it the ugliness of of what surrounds us. Um, I don't know if ugliness is perhaps the right term, but perhaps the dangers. in my research, I came across the work of a, a, a surfer, believe it or not. He was, he was in Florida and he was in the waters and he started getting really sick and started coughing up blood and having like a lot of chest problems. And a lot of the other surfers were having problems as well. But of course, you know, the water that he was in seemed perfectly clean and the beach was perfectly clean. But then just one night, just out of curiosity, he used a UV lamp. And when he shone it on the beaches, he saw that the beach was glowing a fluorescent orange color. After a little bit more investigation, he realized that this was the Corexit dispersant that was used during the BP oil spill. And even though the beach looked picture perfect, in fact, it was highly, highly polluted. So in that sense, there's a lot of danger around us that we can't see as well. The idea of waste that you were just talking about makes me think of that saying, One person's trash is another person's treasure. You address this in the book, and I found that your discussion on one of my favorite subjects, feces, (laughs) I am the germ guy, (laughs) it was so, it was incredibly interesting. How can human waste lead to something that ends up actually benefiting us all? It's incredible because, you know, human waste and excrement was so valued through so much of history. The Chinese for, for ages had incredibly fertile soil. And a lot of that was because human excrement was responsible for, um, I think it was something as much as a third of their fertilizer. And in many different places, indigenous people used to actually kill people who would actually hurt seabirds because seabirds produced guano and guano was so important as a source of fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And even in places like Japan, during the Edo period, people there would actually trade in feces and trade boatloads of vegetables would come in and exchange for, for fecal matter because feces was so important. But of course, these days we treat feces like sh**. You know, we don't we don't actually value it. So it's actually, yeah, it was a very fascinating sort of uh, rabbit hole to sort of jump down, perhaps right down into a sewer in some ways to sort of investigate how important fecal matter is. In fact, even in places like Japan today, when they mine their sewers, they're finding uh, basically more gold than you would be able to mine um, in an actual mine. Uh, because that's because we have so many different nanoparticles. We use so many gold particles and a lot of, um, you know, the everyday products we create, even clothing, we sew in gold nanoparticles. So they're able to recover a lot of that within our waste. Speaking of the Far East, you discuss a very interesting phenomenon that happens there as well. Robot dog funerals. Is that just a cultural quirk or is there 
something more important going on here that represents maybe our blind spot here in the West? Basically in Japan, for, for your listeners, I don't know if they've come across it, but there was a, a famous dog that was being produced, the Ibo robot dog. And a lot of people in Japan who had them became very very attached to these robots. And when basically they were discontinued, the line was discontinued, one person ended up setting up a robot dog, I guess, vet hospital so that he could um, try to fix the robot dogs that were, were, you know, aging and having their parts, you know, their parts needed to get fixed. But sometimes all that would happen is you would need a transplant. And the only way to get a transplant was from, you know, quote unquote, dead robot dog. So for those dead robot dogs, I mean, there were real tears. There were people really, really sad because these, these robot dogs had a little bit of intelligence to them, right? They were created so that they would but basically, they could be trained so that certain preferences of their owners would, I guess, trained into the, into the sort of basic intelligence of the dog. With Japanese culture, um, with Shintoism in particular, that religion, there's this different approach to material culture. And there's this belief that things have a spirit, even inanimate things. And I think one of the things that's the, the things that's kind of interesting about that is fundamentally you and me, we're, we're all made by inanimate matter, right? We're animate, but we're mm-hmm. made out of inanimate particles. So it's interesting to see the way different people approach things like this in different cultures and countries. The process of being animated, even though we're made from inanimate objects, usually comes out in the form of language. That's how we communicate with one another. And I find it so interesting that even if you don't speak the same language, you can still pretty much gather what someone might be saying based on how they say it, what they are saying in terms of tone and movement that goes with it. From what I understand, we are not the only ones who communicate using language. What did you find in your research for this book? Yeah, this is another one of these sorts of blind spots. And and blind spots actually don't necessarily need to be visual. They can be auditory. They They can be olfactory, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever done any of those tests where um, you can hear different frequencies of sound based on what age you are. I know when I was in Australia quite recently, I was with my aunt and I realized that because the, the chirps of the crickets were quite high pitched, she couldn't actually hear them. When I was, you know, I was looking, I was actually just coming across some work of E.O. Wilson recently and he was talking about olfaction and all the scents that different insects and moths use to navigate through the wind. And if only we could see those senses, what a different appreciation of the world we would have. So in line with what you're saying, yeah, um, I came across the work of a man named Dr. Konchlobachikov, and he studies prairie dogs. And he is basically developing, I guess he's cracking the Rosetta Stone in a sense of animal language. And he's been able to do that because he realized that prairie dog barks, they have specific alarm calls for different predators. So the alarm call for an eagle or a coyote or a human, while it sounds the same to human ears, in fact, uh, when you see a computer printout of it, the wavelength, the amplitude suggests that each call is very different. But he took things further and he ended up taking in different shapes and sizes and colors into the colony. And he realized that the the prairie dogs were able to distinguish between a circle and a triangle and different colors, as well as different shapes and sizes. So then he did something just incredibly remarkable. And he sent in a student through the prairie dog colony and he just changed one variable, which was the color of their shirt and the barks 
that he had decoded suggested that the prairie dogs were barking tall, thin, human, wearing green. He would just change the shirt color and it would be tall, thin, human, wearing blue, which is absolutely jaw-dropping because we completely take for granted that we're the only species that has, well, that is sentient, but let alone that is communicating. So there's a whole other world that is opening up that science is just starting to understand. I mean, the same thing is happening with trees. Trees communicate? Yeah, absolutely. There are scientists right here in uh, Canada that are looking at the communication of trees. They're calling it the wood wide web, the mycorrhizal network uh, <laughs> underneath, you know, all the all the different root systems by which trees are able to, you know, signal defenses, be able to feed each other. We're starting to learn a lot more. And, you know, it, it's just a, a wonderful, marvelous. I'm just always struck with awe when I when I learn about all these things that were, you know, previously my eyes were closed to. One of the things that I love to do when I'm awed by science is think about how this could possibly relate to a philosophy. And even in this show, we're going to be bringing up some philosophy a bit later on. The Taoists believe that there is value in emptiness. In your book, you take that a little bit further and you talk about how tangible emptiness can be for us, but perhaps not necessarily for our spirit, but our wallet. (laughs) And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that idea of making money off of empty spaces. There's a chapter that I did that was all on space and how we started carving up space using measurement um, and carved it up to sort of human scale until space became sort of cubes and parcels that we could buy, sell and trade. Right. And in the past, there used to be a really odd uh, notion, not odd at the time, odd to us perhaps only now, and it was called ad coelum. And it was the notion that if you owned property, you owned your piece of property from the bowels of hell all the way up into the heavens, right? Which it seems really absurd if you're in real estate today that you get to own all of that airspace and all of that land space. But that was the case in the past. And surprisingly, it all came down to really a a plucky chicken farmer who was in North Carolina. And he, during the Second World War, he, he had his chickens and basically these these he was li- he was living really near an aircraft base, a military base. And these planes with their roaring jet engines would land right by his chicken farm and it was freaking out his chickens. So his chickens were basically going into shock and running straight into the wall and killing themselves. And this was also killing his business. So he filed a, co- a court case and a complaint. And he actually won. And so the military had to um, basically sort of block off. They weren't able to land within his airspace. And this sort of shut down this idea that that all this space could be owned right up to the sky. So we started parceling off areas of airspace that could be government owned, that could be civilian owned, that could be owned by various state entities. And in that sense, uh, to get back to your original question, yes, we've been able to parcel up empty space so that we can uh, start to make money from it. And it made for a great episode on elementary as well. Just to, <laughs> for those of you who yeah. watch the show, you totally know what I'm talking about. You have seen science from all over the world as the host yeah, of Daily Planet. Lucky. You have had probably one of the best opportunities to appreciate not just the beauty of our universe, but also the blind spots that we also have. You also had to go through your own opening of the eyes, if you will, to appreciate blind spots before even writing this book. 
Would you like to share a little bit of how you went about that? I think that, you know, one of the quotes that I didn't use but was uh, an ins- sort of, you know, a note of inspiration when I started writing was, you must unlearn what you have learned. And it is by the one and only Yoda. And uh, I think that, you know, it's really about seeing seeing the ordinary world in an extraordinary new way, right? And mm-hmm. so the, the toughest thing for me was starting to wind back the clock and kind of look look at ordinary things with a real new sense of wonder so I could sort of peel back the layers on them. And, you know, I have one tattoo, really, one main one that's on the back of my neck, and it's a question mark. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you're always asking, why, 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 uh-huh. you know? And I'm the adult who just continues to do the same thing. And I think that if you start and you stay curious in that sense, then you can start to just reveal more about the world around you. And it starts to become a, a lot more unexpected. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Expected. It's Sass Class time and today we're going to explore how our brains appreciate beauty. Do that, we must mix two very different branches of knowledge philosophy and neuroscience. Our guest teacher is Anne Brielman, and she is a doctoral student at New York University. Her research is currently focusing on how we can develop an equation to determine how a person identifies something beautiful. I've really been looking forward to this. What makes experiencing beauty different from other human experiences? I think the key to this question is what you mean by other experiences, right? So I can contrast it, for example, to other experiences of just say, I look at something and I just, you know, tell you what it is. It's just a factual statement of, oh, there's a tree. And the difference between saying, oh, there's a tree and, oh, that's a beautiful tree is that it's also an emotional statement, right? Um, it, it makes me feel something. It's not just recognizing that there's something out there. It's making a judgment about this. And that judgment has an emotional valence. So it's, in the case of beauty, it's very positive. But then you could also say, well, there's other emotional judgments. Say, for example, oh, that tree looks really healthy. That's also making a positive judgment about the tree. But it's um, just a judgment about the tree. It doesn't say anything about myself. An experience of beauty is not only an emotional judgment, an emotional statement, it also refers to the fact that that is my emotion, right? I am feeling positive about an object out there. So it's something out there, it's sensory, um, it's emotional, it's positive, and it's positive for me and myself internally. And that sounds an awful lot like other rewarding experiences, right? Like saying, oh, that, you know, that tastes good or I find that agreeable. And I think that's where it becomes more difficult to differentiate beauty from other rewarding experiences. 
And that's sort of an ongoing question where that line lies. I'm a bit of a philosophical neophyte. I'm microbiology and immunology for the most part, but I have dabbled a little bit in philosophy. And this sounds very similar to a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. I've never been able to really merge science, microbiology and immunology with philosophy, but it really sounds like this is what you're doing. Yes, definitely. I think that's what I aspire to do, say it like that, because I'm also I'm a trained psychologist um, and you know, partially neuroscience as well. So my foundations are within science, but I've always been fascinated with philosophy. I studied philosophy in high school for a long time and Immanuel Kant intensively too. And I always had this hunch that, you know, philosophers have been thinking about many, many essential uh, questions of psychology for thousands of years. Their ideas are valuable to us. And they did make hypotheses about what could be going on inside a human when, for example, we have an experience of beauty. And so my reasoning when I came to NYU and we started looking into beauty was, well, if there's already theories out there about what makes an experience of beauty special, why don't we look at those philosophical theories and see whether we can test them with our empirical methods? How did you manage to create an experimental design to test a philosophical theory? Some people would say we kind of slaughtered Immanuel Kant's writings and searched for the, <laughs> the simplest statements we could find. So we went back to his writings when he was still a young man, not completely wrapped up in his own kind of world of philosophical doctrines. And we just looked for these super simple, practical statements that he made. And there was one in particular where he said, you can enjoy many pleasures like women drinking beer without any thought whatsoever. But when you have an experience of beauty, that is not the case. And so we basically what we did to be able to empirically test the philosophical theory was we boiled it down to, to one, two statements that were very clear and that kind of made these predictions, right? Because that is the, the cornerstone of, of any scientific theory is it needs to make a prediction about if I add or subtract X, then it will impact Y in this way. And that's exactly what we found in Kant. We found that he said, an experience of beauty requires thought. Other nice experiences don't. So our reasoning was, well, you know, if we take away thought, then Kant's prediction would be there cannot be an experience of beauty. He said that we need that. So you're telling me you were able to find an equation to determine whether or not someone is able to appreciate beauty? More or less, yes. We have found the approximate shape of the equation, say it like that. So we know that in this equation, if you don't have, if you're not able to think about the experience, so we call it a little bit fancier cognitive capacity. So if if you're distracted from the object that is usually beautiful to you, you cannot experience beauty. That is one element in in this equation. And then we also find that people call an experience beautiful when the pleasure that they get from this experience exceeds a certain threshold. 
and just not being able to think dampens the pleasure. So it, it's again below threshold, and therefore there's no beauty experience. So you could you could kind of say there is there's an equation in that. What we don't have in that equation yet is the exact number of what is that specific threshold pleasure. P. Bo, if I remember correctly. Yep. Whenever television or movies are trying to convey some kind of beauty, there's always that shot of the field with someone walking in it and their hands touching the flowers or the wheat or whatever it happens to be. Do you think we might be able to find an equation as to why that works? That is a really interesting question, especially because you also mentioned that this is not only about you know, looking at something or listening to something, which we usually say is beautiful, but it also has this multidimensional component of you touch something, there's almost a smell lingering in the air, right? And I think that this is part of the beauty equation that we have not yet found. It's like maybe there's also something more to it than what we've been looking at, some, some way of like how many connections can you have to the experience. The other part that I hear in your question is can we can we predict what kind of experiences are beautiful, beautiful to most people? Mm-hmm. And that's an equation that we have not been looking into so much, but a lot of our colleagues, when you look at what they've been writing, then very often they argue that so beauty is a pleasure experience and pleasure experiences in an evolutionary context are things that we should approach because they're beneficial to us or to the survival of the species. And such romantic images like walking through a cornfield, um, especially if there's, you know, there's maybe mountains or forests in the background, um, the lake close by, etc., give us pleasure because those are environments that are good for humans to live in, right? So they would argue, well, things are beautiful to us that kind of signal approach me or consume me or be with me. You should be here because um, this is giving you, you know, a, a good climate to live in or nutrients or um, in the case of another human being, oh, that's a potential partner or protector or whatever. We may be able to put that in an equation one day, but we are not quite there yet. It's too complex of an experience as far as we understand it now. That's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped you to realize that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, but in the ability to see past our blind spots. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to take a moment to thank everyone who has been listening because your support is overwhelming. And we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and we're going to answer them on the show, usually in the form of entire episodes. Send me a tweet with your ideas at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you're new to the show or haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. It may even get us profiled. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today 
and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.